So Ephesians chapter 1, and I'm going to read um, from verse 15 to the end of the chapter. And Paul says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And Father God, I want to pray with Paul these very words, that you would enlighten our spiritual eyes, that we might perceive the realities that you are speaking about in this passage. And I pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. This, we are going into the spiritual realm today. And I have to warn you, I have got the matrix buzzing around my head right now. I, you, you will think I normally pray on a Sunday. This morning, I was watching clips from the matrix. This is my preparation for this moment. And I, 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 I'm a bit of a geek, and I've got myself as Morpheus right now. And I'm offering you a red pill. Okay, so if you know that, 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 that scene in the first film where Neo gets brought in by Trinity to meet Morpheus for the first time and they have this amazing chat about the Matrix and all that is beyond this, this realm, the blindness that he has and then he offers them these two pills, there's a blue pill or a red pill. I even noted the quote down. So here, come with me like Morpheus. After this, there is no turning back and I'm inviting you into a different realm this morning. You take the blue pill and the story ends. You wake up in your bed and believe whatever you want to believe. You take the red pill, which is what Paul is praying for us this morning. You stay in Wonderland and I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. And us like Neo, I would suggest, are aware, and Morpheus describes it like a splinter in the mind. There is this awareness in our mind that even as we go about the very ordinary stuff of life, that this isn't just all there is. And sometimes we have moments where we experience it, don't we? It might be in our room at night and we just suddenly there's this awareness. We know this physical realm isn't all there is. We might even be on the tube and we're just going about our normal life and suddenly this spark, this splinter in the mind suddenly thinks, is this all there is? And there is this growing awareness, I was just in society, that we know that the physical realm cannot explain everything about who we are and what we feel. There is this growing wave of Eastern spirituality that we are absorbing as a Western society now, where we are taking on board all what the Eastern society have for centuries and centuries believed in, but in the West, through our enlightenment, we have poo-pooed in the large, but now we are beginning to accept and begin to embrace and to think there must be more than this life beyond us. 
Because there's this awareness that all of the things that we are tasting, all the goodness that we get in the Western society, it is still not satisfying some deep longing deep down in our souls. And most of us here will know something of that. That we've tasted some of the good things that life has for us. And yet on the other end of that, we still haven't quite been satisfied in a very imperceptible sense in our heart. Am I making sense? C.S. Lewis, he writes this. He says, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. He says, a baby feels hunger where there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim where there is such a thing as water. We feel sexual desire where there is such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. So all of our pursuing for longing for satisfaction, actually, if we take it logically, should take us beyond the physical realm. And the logical conclusion... Not the out there conclusion, the logical conclusion of our searching for satisfaction in this life, which we all have, the logical conclusion to that is that there is a spiritual realm that we can't quite touch or feel, but we know is out there somewhere. And for me, reflecting on this, I think for us in in central London, where we're very driven about careers and things, we resist this sense on one level, because if we do admit that there is a spiritual realm beyond this, What it says to us ambitious, achieving people is that it might not be the top of the tree when I get to the end of my career. Because if there is a bigger world out there than just my career, then maybe this isn't it. And maybe I haven't made it like I thought I had made it. So I think there's a level in which we, we resist this. Because it tells us that there is a bigger realm out there that is larger than us and our achievements and our career. And it pulls the rug from underneath all of our earthly workings. So we don't come at this neutral. But what Paul does in this passage here is he prays that we will, as it were, take the red pill and come with him down the rabbit hole and see worlds beyond this world. To walk, to mix up all the metaphors this morning. To walk through the wardrobe into Narnia. Yes, there we go. I'll I'll hit you with one story at some point this morning. And he is praying because this book in Ephesians isn't just about pragmatics. How to have a better marriage. How to live a better life. How to be better at your work. Not how to be more moral. This letter to the Ephesian Christians who are in a city just like us. A major world influencing city. He was writing to them with, with... Being in mind that this letter is, as it were, a portal into another realm, a spiritual realm. So let me just take you through a super quick survey through what Paul is talking about in this letter. In chapter 1, verse 3, he says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Paul has this matrix in his mind, no pun in in, in whatever, um, where the physical realm and the spiritual realm are totally intertwined. That as we live our everyday physical life, we now get blessed in the spiritual realm. And these two things are connected. And then he prays in verse 18 of chapter 1, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, 
that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. He is asking for our spiritual eyes to see something that our physical eyes can't see. And he says in chapter 2, verse 2, he says, You were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air. So Paul has this category in his mind that we can do our everyday normal life, but at the same time there is this spiritual being of evil that has so much control, he can talk about it as a being that has the power of the air. So he has this category where you can see things, but then there are things that we cannot see that explain a lot of the evil of our world. He goes on at the end of chapter 2, verse 22, in him, talking about Christians, forming churches in him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the spirit so when Paul would look at this gathering he would say you are not just a group of individuals coming together what is happening now is a spiritual reality that you are forming a spiritual temple where the very presence of God can dwell And then he says in chapter 3, verse 10, this about church life. He says that church has been brought into being so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. And I have to admit, I do not know all that that means. But in Paul's mind, he is writing and saying, as you gather together, something spiritual is being declared and proclaimed. Just as I'm preaching to you now, that our gathering preaches somehow in the spiritual realm to other beings. He says in chapter 4, verse 26, he says, very practically now, be angry. He says, so sometimes it's okay to be angry. There are good things to be angry about, things that are happening in Lebanon, etc. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, though, and give no opportunity to the devil. So Paul says, there is a way in which you can be angry, which is good, but there is a way in which your anger can lead you to kind of have an open gap in your heart so that the devil can actually have, get a little foothold in your life and he can aggravate that and aggravate and that and aggravate it so that you find yourself what was once just a small thing actually years and years and decades down the line you become someone you never wanted to be because we are bound up in this life in the spiritual realm and then he says at the end i mean let me do one two more this is right throughout marriage 5 verse 32 this mystery and it is a mystery marriage is profound and i'm saying that it refers not to just something that is for societal good to christ and the church Something way bigger than just a husband and a wife coming together is happening in marriage. It is about Christ and his church. And then he closes the whole of this letter out in this. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the armour of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. So Paul, he looks at the physical world and he works hard. And at the same time, is fully aware that every single physical step we take is a step into a spiritual realm as well. And Paul is praying that we would have spiritual senses to be aware of that this morning. This is the heart of his prayer in chapter 1. He says, verse 17, he prays that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which 
he has called you. So just as he lays out this huge panoramic vista of the spiritual realm that is just beyond us now, not in like a physical location, but if we could see it, he says, if you could have your eyes enlightened, you could almost see it with your spiritual eyes. And what we find at the very centre of this spiritual realm is God himself. Not just vague generalities, but the very centre of this spiritual realm is God. And Paul is making the point that every true spiritual quest goes actually not into our hearts, but out of ourselves and to another God himself. Every time we go on a true spiritual quest with our spiritual senses, it will lead us to a being who is greater and grander and more beautiful than we are. And it will take us out of ourselves in stark contrast to what most spiritual quests look like today, which is a quest inwards. That I want to find myself, I want to know my identity, I want to find who I am. So what do we do? We are told to go into ourselves, to centre ourselves in us. And then we will find peace in this world. And the Christian spiritual journey goes in exactly the opposite direction. And it takes us away from ourselves and to God, the one who made us. The odd thing is this, that every time that we go out of ourselves to find God, we actually get thrown in for free a knowledge of who we are. Because when we come into the light of God, we actually find who we are because we come into the light of one who made us. And we find light and we find peace and purpose because he's the one who designed us. And if we are continually looking into ourselves for spiritual enlightenment, what we find is all this mass of um, emotions and swaying passions and desires and confusions about all sorts of things. And if we're trying to find ourselves, we change all the time, year after year, year. Decade after decade, our passions and desires change. And if we're trying to find ourselves, we'll always live in confusion. And yet Paul prays, will you have your eyes enlightened so that you may see and know God? The knowledge of him. And there are two things to say about this knowledge of God. The first thing is this. There's a knowing and then there's a knowing. If you know what I mean. There's a way in which you can know stuff and then there's a way in which you can know stuff. I grew up in church, which is like really super clear. I understand that. I grew up in church and from the age of zero, I, was, I, I went to Sunday school. I coloured in pictures of disciples. I coloured in pictures of sheep. I coloured pictures of Jesus carrying sheep. Every iteration of disciples, sheep and Jesus, I coloured that picture in. I've been there, done that. I've heard a lot of sermons. I've heard a lot of Bible stories. I was raised in church. So on one level, I knew quite a bit about the Bible. You could have asked me at the age of 10 about some Bible stories. And I probably could have told you some of the basics of like Noah and Jesus and disciples and sheep and stuff like that. I knew the Bible. But it wasn't until a pastor challenged me and he says, you need now to read the Bible for yourself and ask hard questions of the text. It wasn't until that point when I was 17, he said, you read the Bible now for yourself, that I began to read it and something happened I can only describe it like the eyes of my heart were suddenly opened because previously I had read the Bible and I'd understood it and I'd heard sermons and what had happened is that I'd heard it as intellectual things to think about 
That's what happens on a Sunday, but it is not relevant for the rest of my life. And suddenly as I was sitting in Starbucks, nearly boarding, reading the Bible, my heart was burning with a passion for this man Jesus. And it was like I was blind and now I could see because I thought, how could I have gone for all of these years reading about this man and thought this was boring just for a Sunday? Suddenly with my heart was exploding because I can only describe it as a scene. I saw Jesus and he was compelling to me. Up until that point, I would have told, if you'd asked me, I would have said, Jesus is important. Yeah, he's an important man. Like, historically, he's very important. I would have even said, you need to respect and reverence God. But if you had looked at my life and said, what is really interesting to you, it would have looked like skating, going out, parties, those kind of things. That, that was what was interesting to me. But suddenly what happened is the one who was actually mentally important became interesting because my spiritual senses were suddenly awakened. It's a bit like this. If we were to have a discussion as to what were the best breakfasts going, we could have a discussion. But actually I have the answer and it's the holy trinity of breakfasts. It's pancakes, crispy bacon, a lot of it, and a lot of Canadian maple syrup poured all over. It was my birthday on Friday, and what did I have for breakfast? Pancakes, crispy bacon, and maple syrup. This is the breakfast of breakfast. And I can tell you a lot about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit of breakfast, but you will only know one level of knowing. I could tell you about the fat fluffiness of the pancakes, especially when they're warm coming out of the oven. I can tell you about the crispy bacon and the smell. I can tell you about having too much maple syrup, so you're like, you want a soup, and you're just eating it like this. I can tell you all about that, and you all know quite a lot about that breakfast. But what we're talking about here with our spiritual eyes being enlightened is that you get to sit down and to actually eat it and enjoy it. And there is a knowing and there is a knowing. And this is what Paul is praying. That you will not just go away from this place knowing God is important. But he is interesting, compelling, winsome, glorious, beautiful. And my heart has been captivated by him. I want that breakfast tomorrow morning. That's what we're going to go away from this place thinking. The second thing is this. This knowing that we have, this knowledge of him, is not a tick box exercise this is a spiritual odyssey that we go on. What Paul is praying for here, he's praying for people who already believe in Jesus. These are people who already say, yeah, I'm a Christian. And yet he is praying that they would know him. So on one level you think, well, they know Jesus already. So why are you praying that they would know him more? Because actually what happens is the moment that you come to see Jesus, not just as important, but as interesting and compelling, in that moment, a spiritual sense is awakened in you that... You want more and more and more and more. In that moment in Ealing, when I was reading the Bible and I suddenly had my eyes opened and I saw Jesus for the first time as someone I wanted to follow, I didn't think, wonderful, I read that chapter, closed the Bible, what's next in my life? Uh, I haven't seen the new Bond film, I'd like to see that. What else? I've moved on from Christianity, I know it. It wasn't like I've ticked a box in my life, I now know Jesus. As soon as I came into contact with Jesus, I met someone who was infinite in glory. And we as finite beings who are exploring someone who is infinite in glory and wealth and splendour and beauty can only have eternity to explore all of the glories that he has for our souls. Yes. There is so much more for us to know mm. in 
Jesus. And I know some people struggle with this. Because there's that verse at the end of Amazing Grace. You know Amazing Grace. And it says, we, when we've been there for 10,000 years. You know this one? We've no less days to sing his praise. And some people love that. Because they just love to sing and worship. That, you, you mean I get another 10,000 years to sing the praises of Jesus? This is amazing. And some people just love it. And there are some people who, if you're honest, in your honest quiet moments when we're not in church, you will say your heart quietly dies. Because you think, I've struggled to get through the last three songs in this church service. And you're telling me that I've got to sing praise for 10,000 years. And when I get to that place, I need to sing another 10,000 years of praise to Jesus. That's my reward for following Christ. And John would say, yep, that's all we've got. 10,000 years, once you've done that, you get another 10,000 years of singing praise to Jesus. And you think, what? Ah, ah, that's what we get for this following Christ thing. Because we haven't, I mean, there's so much stuff to say about it philosophically and theologically. Eternal life isn't linear with no limits of energy, all of that kind of stuff. But you've got to conceptually, God, God is infinite in glory. And if he does contain infinite glory that our hearts were ultimately made for, it would make very logical sense that we will explore him more and more and more and more. So every time we hear, hey, I've another sermon this is not like oh I heard this sermon back in 1994 I don't need this one this is another opportunity for us to go deep into the presence of God so it's a good test for us to think where our heart is at right now are we satisfied with our knowledge of God are we satisfied with what we can right now see of God or are we hungry to know more of him is there a sense in which we are pressing on? And it's my heart for us as Trinity that we will have a culture where we come hungry to know the infinite splendour of God. Because that marks out believers. You know, where, where are you at with, with God? You think, how hungry am I to, to know him more? To open up the word and find out more about who this, this God is. Because lots of Christians today generally, quietly, go through their Christian life a little bit bored. Because they think, well, I've read that passage, and I've done that, and I've been to a church service, I know what happens, I know the songs, and etc., etc. Is that you? I know it can happen in my heart sometimes. I mean, I, I was like thinking about it even yesterday, thinking, you know, I, I can sit through episode upon episode upon episode of a Netflix series, Better Call Saul at the moment, and I can sit there busting for the toilet and yet I will not go to the toilet because I need to see what's going to happen at the end of the episode and yet the moment I open my bible I'm feeling so sleepy and like I think it's probably time to bed now (laughs) and yet I can sit through hours of Netflix holding on thinking I need to find out what happens and yet where's my spiritual hunger for the one who made me who actually has infinite glory who I will find peace in Jesus says it in John 17, 3. He says, this is eternal life, that you would know God and his son, Jesus Christ. This is life, that we would know Christ. So how are we doing? Here's three things that Paul actually specifically prays for. He prays firstly, that we would have hope. Verse 18, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. Because when you see Jesus... When you see him with your spiritual eyes, you see through the matrix, you see into the spiritual realm, and you get a glimpse of the splendor, the sparkling glory of Christ. When you see that, what you see is hope for your life. 
H. Maul, who is a commentator on this passage, he describes hope as faith on its tiptoes. He describes it like when you come in faith, what you has this, this hope arises in you that leaves you on tiptoes looking to the future. Because Christianity has a radical future orientation. That when you see Jesus, you see the goal of your life, the finishing tape of your life, the one whom you are called to, and that glory and splendour at the end of your life that you will receive in relationship will grant you hope for today. And don't we need it? We are living in such uncertain times and we don't need to rehearse it but there is a generational thing going on now where where there was once positivity and optimism about the future we are only left now with a generation coming up who are pessimistic and uncertain and lacking in confidence in any of the institutions around us be it church or industry or commerce or even celebrities now we have lost confidence in those around us and that the future will be bright this isn't just a brexit thing this is a generational thing We are lacking in confidence about the future. I read just yesterday that the depression rates in the UK in the last five years have doubled. In the last five years. And that's complex, I know. But one of the factors in that is the fact that we have lost some hope about what the future will be like tomorrow. And yet, as believers who can see, we see hope. We know we're going to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. But we're told at the end of Psalm 23 that the Lord is preparing a table before us in the presence of our enemies. He anoints our head with oil. My cup, it overflows. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord the end of my life forever. So we walk through this life when other people are uncertain and pessimistic. Whistling, arms swinging, quite happy because we know there is hope for our lives. And the second thing he prays is that we would know the inheritance that we have coming. He says, verse 18, Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? This is amazing. And commentators are kind of discussing as to whether this is the inheritance that God receives or whether this is the inheritance that we receive. And on one level, they are both utterly connected. You can't separate them. But it's probable in Paul's mind now, when you look at it, that Paul is thinking about the inheritance that God in Jesus Christ is going to receive. Because we're told not only that we receive an inheritance as those adopted into the family of God, but actually Jesus Christ is one as the Son of God who has an inheritance from the Father. Psalm 2, we're told the Father says to the Son, ask of me and I will give you the nations as your inheritance. And we're told that Jesus did ask and he did suffer for us. Hebrews 12 says that Jesus went to the cross for the joy that was set before him. What was that joy? But those who would trust in him. And so Isaiah 53, when he was prophesying about Jesus years beforehand, he says this, When his soul, that is Jesus, when his soul makes an offering for guilt that is on the cross, he shall see his offspring and he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands and out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see, that is his offspring, those who will come after him because of his death and be satisfied. And so we find ourselves as those who are in Christ, as part of the inheritance of Christ. 
we are part of that heavenly throng in Revelation where Jesus will receive those whom he has redeemed from slavery, us. Which should give us confidence because if we can see that, if we can know it in our hearts, what we will see is that even at the moment, we're in the West, it feels like the church is just a minor footnote in history. There is a day coming where all the nations will be gathered together as one to the throne of Christ and will worship Jesus as Lord and Redeemer and as the glorious one. And we will see beyond this moment. You think, we're just 60 adults in a room in a hotel hoping to bless London and the nations. How can we do that? There is a day coming where we will find ourselves bumping shoulder to shoulder with a throng that we will not be able to count. That will give glory to this Jesus who has redeemed us. Hallelujah. This is the spiritual reality that we live in. There is an inheritance coming that goes way beyond what is happening in this room right now. And then thirdly, he prays for this, that we would know the power that is in the name of Jesus. So he says this in verse 19. He says, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might? So Paul prays, would you be able to see in Jesus' name the power that he has? And not just power, but immeasurably great power the words here hooperballon it means this sense of you cast something as far as it can go humanly speaking and then you go beyond that and that is where god's power exists it's beyond anything that we could cast out and measure in this world so we've got so many ways in which we can measure things kilowatts and other watts and things like that i'm not a scientist but you get the drift and there However far you go with that, however far you think scientists have taken human engineering and power, there is a power that goes beyond that because it is not generated from within this world. It comes from without of this world, from God himself. And there is a power that is being exercised even now, even now in London and the nations, if we could just see it in two realms. It says, firstly, there is power being exercised over death. In verse 20, this power that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. This is the power of God. Not just a power to resuscitate. Because we will all hear stories where moments where people have died and their heart might have stopped. And yet, miraculously, they get resuscitated. There's that amazing story a few years back of Fabrice Mwamba. Remember the footballer? He just dropped dead in the middle of the football pitch and his heart stopped for 78 minutes. He was declared dead until after all the, the, the help and the medical attention never stopped, his heart stopped beating again and he's alive and well today. Not a footballer, but alive and well. That's a resuscitation from the dead because he's still getting older and one day he will die. But what happens in Jesus Christ is that God exercises a power over death, so much so that death is conquered once and for all. So when Jesus Christ gets crucified on that Roman cross and he is buried in a tomb, in that moment, the Father, because of his great glory, exercises his power on a Sunday morning and he starts Christ's heart again and Jesus sits up in that moment and is brought back to life and he takes off the swaddling cloths that he had been wrapped in as a dead man and he walks out of that tomb 
and he walks as a victor away from a conquered foe. He, he, as it were, drops the mic, walks away from death, never to be touched by death again. Because he was a victor in that moment. Never to die again. So that when he was ascended, he didn't just die of old age. He ascended a few weeks later into the heavenly realms so that he still lives today free from the power of death. And don't we need this? We all struggle with it. Don't we? We all struggle with the idea of death. Mark Mason, who is a journalist, is a journalist, I should say. Um, He says this, deep down we're troubled by condolence cards, not because of the social awkwardness, but because every death is a reminder that one day it will be our turn. Hardwired into us is a difficulty with accepting our own mortality. Life, he says, is one long struggle to accept that life will end. Superficially, we're all logic and reason. No one seriously thinks they're immortal, but our subconscious is fighting Isn't that honest? And we struggle with it all the time. And I think it comes out with this weird relationship we have with time. Ever notice how we we just are always struggling with the concept of time? Like seconds and minutes, like the very practical nature of like, there is such a thing of time. On one level, we should be very good at knowing time. Because we've been at time for like hundreds and thousands of years. So, and it's quite a basic concept. There's 60 seconds in a minute, there's 60 minutes in an hour, etc., etc., 24 hours in a day. Like, it's not a difficult thing to get our heads around. There is a logical consequence, sequence to time. And yet, what do we always say about March time, Easter time, or about now? We say, oh my goodness, it's almost Christmas 2018. Because we haven't got our heads around the fact that, yes, eight months takes eight months' time. And I know some clever person will say, ah, oh, but when you get older, it's a smaller percentage of your time, and all these kind of things. So it feels like it's getting quicker and quicker. But surely, after 36 years of practice now, I would be okay at guessing like what this year might feel like. But I can't, because I would suggest my heart is not made for time, it's made for eternity. Yeah. And I'm struggling with the fact that my life is coming to an end. And yet, in Jesus Christ, we have a power that can be exercised towards us where that the end does not have to be an end and our heart can stop fighting and we can know that we will live for eternal glory with Jesus because there is a resurrection to come. Amen? The second power that he exercises towards us is over evil. Because he says this, When he raised him from the dead and then seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. When Jesus sits down, it's because his work is done. I've finished my work now. We're told in Hebrews 1 that after making purification for sins, he sits down at the right hand of the majesty. Because it's after my work is done, I I sit. You sit at the end of the day because you think my work's finished. I don't need to do any more. And yet Jesus right now, he sits. He's not stressed about all the wrongdoing and the injustice because he knows his final definitive work is done and he sits at the right hand of the Father, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet. That is, the Father put all things under Jesus' feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. And we we have advanced in a lot of things, haven't we? Scientifically, industrially, socially, we have advanced in many, many areas. 
What is the one area that we have not advanced in at all? It's moral life. Because for all of our sense of getting better and better as a society, we only have to turn on the news and in our honest moments look inside our heart and our minds and know that we are as evil as ever. We thought we had nailed it after the First World War, thinking that will never happen again. And yet a few decades later, the Second World War happens. And we're all shocked and flabbergasted, thinking, how can this come about? And today, we are still dealing, as we've already heard, with record levels of slavery. We think, well, no, aren't we moving forward? It doesn't take much to realise we are not moving forward morally. There is an evil in this world that is rife that we cannot get a hold of or control. And God in this passage tells us that in the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the ascension of Jesus to the right hand of the Father, there is one who exercises all control and dominion over all the rulers and dominions of this world that would want to do evil. So that we can pray to this one as we work hard in Lebanon to say, Lord, would you release the captives? And he has power to exercise his authority over even evil powers. And we need this because this is a power that we cannot control. And all of this, we're told, is available to us. He says in verse 19, these words, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe? And again in verse 22, he says, and he, the father, put all things under his feet, Jesus, and gave him his head over all things to the church. So all of this power that Jesus has is not just raw power that he sometimes manifests and exercises like I'm just going to flex my muscles in this moment, bang, here's some power, here's some power. It's not just raw power that Jesus has. He exercises this power graciously towards those who would believe in him for the good of the society around us. It's one thing to see a Ferrari parked on the roads. And the owner just revving the engine. It's another thing for that person to go out and give you the keys and say, by the way, this is yours now to drive. And what Paul is saying is if we would have the spiritual eyes to see it, what God is inviting us to do is to step into the spiritual throne and have the power for ourselves and have the power in our life that we might know this kind of power to subdue the wrongdoing in our souls and in our lives and we might have power to be those who are agents of bringing justice to those around us. It's for us. So I want to make three questions or three invitations to you this morning. The firstly is this. Will you seek after God and know him for yourself? Will you pursue him and pray to him that you might see these things. As Morpheus said to Neo for the very last time, you can't just be told about these things, you need to see them. Will you pray and pray with me that the Lord will open your eyes to see these things? And just take a moment to reflect on your life and think, where am I with God? From my Interest levels to boredom levels, where would I put my heart with Jesus? Just ask yourself. And if you feel like slightly shocked in that, you use that as an awakening for your soul to think, Lord, I want to know you. I want to pursue you. I want to, if this is true, that there is infinite sparkling glory that for my soul to find, 
would you open my eyes to see it? Because this is what takes this theology from head knowledge to heart knowledge. It's simply prayer. It's simply taking this and believing and praying, Lord, would you just open my eyes? The psalmist in Psalm 119 said, Lord, would you open my eyes that I would see wondrous things out of your law? So as you open the scriptures, say, Lord, I want to know you. And I'm going to open the word. I'm going to read some verses. I'm going to pray. Lord, let me see this. That it might captivate my heart. That's the first thing. The second thing is this. Will you fast with me on November the 7th that the Lord would awaken our spiritual senses as a church? As a church now, we're going to be entering into a pattern of monthly fasting and praying. So the first Wednesday of every month, we're going to take that day not to eat. And in the moments where we get hungry, which for me will be about every two and a half minutes, I will be reminded to pray to the Lord and ask him, just as I now feel physically hungry, would you awaken a spiritual hunger in my soul to know more and more of Jesus? I've already heard of some people organising to get together at lunch in town. They're not going to eat. They're just going to pray together. But take that day, will you, to fast from food that you might receive a spiritual awakening in your soul to know Jesus more and more. And put it in your diary. And thirdly, if, you, if all of this up to this point has, has meant nothing, and you're like, yada, 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 this is all just spiritual Bible teaching... I want to invite you to know Jesus for the very first time today. Because it's as simple as this. Lord, with Paul, would you open my spiritual eyes that if you are there, I am willing, as it were, I said it was the last time, I'm really sorry, to take the red pill. And I'm going to take this and I am going to bring all that I am to you because I want to see you if you are really there. Will you pray that today? Just Lord, open my eyes. So many people have found faith and been surprised by the peace and the joy on the other side of making this prayer. Just simply by saying, if you are there, show me. And what we're going to do in just a moment as we worship is we're going to take bread and we're going to take wine to symbolize the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And as we do this, we come to it asking the Lord, will you open my spiritual senses that this might be a moment where I know you Jesus. Let's pray together. If I can invite the band back up. Just as we're sat in this moment, let me just ask you just to still your heart for just a moment. I have no idea where you're at with faith. On that boredom to interest level in Jesus where you think you're at. But I just want to pray for all of us that the hearts our spiritual hearts may be enlightened, that we might see. So Lord, I want to say thank you for dying for us and being raised from the dead, that we might know you, that we might have an entrance point into the spiritual realm and that we might find the logical conclusion to the quest of our souls. You, the Lord who made us. And I pray, Lord, that in this moment, That you might, as it were, thin the atmosphere between this realm and the spiritual realm. And as we sing and worship, you might allow us to see more glory than we've ever seen before. And I pray for us as a church community, Lord. I pray for us that you might enable us to see 
And that as we gather together, this might be a spiritual moment. 